Section 49 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of London, Volume 3, by George W. M. Reynolds, Section 49. Lord Ellingham and Tom Rain. The interview between Lady Hatfield and the Earl of Ellingham had lasted a considerable time, and it was close upon three o'clock in the afternoon when his lordship reached Horsemonger Lane Jail. He communicated to the governor his desire to see Thomas Rainford, and although visitors were usually compelled to speak to prisoners through an iron grating, yet the rank of the nobleman and the fact of his being in the commission of the peace for another county, Middlesex, procured him immediate access to the highwayman's cell. Rainford was sitting in a pensive attitude at a table on which his dinner remained untouched. We have before said, and we now repeat, that he cared but little for the peril of his own predicament. There were, however, ties which bound him to the existence that was now in jeopardy and to the freedom that was lost. He started from his seat with unfeigned surprise when the Earl of Ellingham entered the cell. "'You are astonished to see me here, Mr. Rainford?' said the nobleman in a mild and mournful tone. "'It is a visit, my lord,' was the answer, that I certainly did not expect. "'And yet, if the statement you made to Lady Hatfield be true, I am but performing a duty.' "'Ah, then she has told you that!' exclaimed the prisoner." She has told me that you claim a near, a very near relationship to me, rejoined the nobleman, his voice trembling with emotion, for the reader has seen enough of him to be aware that he possessed a generous heart. Yes, my lord, replied Rainford. The same father was the author of our being, although our mothers were different. Is this true? Is it really true? demanded the earl hastily. As true as there is an almighty God who now beholds the great peer and the prisoned highwayman face to face, replied Rainford solemnly, and divesting himself of his coat, he bared his right arm and exhibited a particular mark. I cannot doubt it. I cannot disbelieve you, exclaimed the nobleman, tears starting from his eyes. And then the great peer and the prisoned highwayman were folded in each other's arms, "'But, my God!' exclaimed Arthur, when the excitement of this fraternal recognition had somewhat passed away. "'In what a condition do I find you, my poor brother?' "'Grieve not for me, Arthur,' said Rainford. "'My fate will soon be decided now, and whatever it may be, I shall be prepared to meet it as becomes a brave man.' "'Talk not thus, Thomas,' cried the nobleman, pressing his hand warmly. I have money to buy off your prosecutors, interest to use in your behalf. If I say to you, yes, use both, Arthur replied the highwayman, it is only because there is one who loves me well and for whose sake I could wish to live. I understand you. You allude to Miss Esther de Medina, said the earl, but there is another for whose sake you must hope to live and enjoy freedom again and that is the brother who now stands before you, and who, for our father's sake, will never, never desert you. My dear Arthur, your kindness unmans me, said Rainford, and yet, if you knew all, 
You would perhaps think that I am not altogether unworthy of your sympathy. But sit down and let me show you that, though of lost and ruined reputation, I am not without some feeling. The Earl took one of the two chairs that there were in the cell, and Rainford seated himself near his half-brother on the other. "'That you are acquainted with a considerable portion of my history I know,' resumed the highwayman. "'For some seven or eight years ago you encountered a gypsy woman near Oxford who revealed to you. "'The faithful Miranda indeed told me all she knew,' interrupted the Earl. "'But at that period she believed you to have been long dead.' "'Yes, and it was only a short time ago that I met her in Hampshire,' answered Rainford, "'and accident led us to converse together. "'A word or two which I dropped without anticipating the result "'induced her to make certain inquiries. "'Then she requested me, in a hurried and excited manner, "'to bear my right arm, "'and it was only on the occasion of which I am speaking "'and which occurred a few months since "'that I learnt the real narrative of my birth. It appears that when Miranda had fallen so dangerously ill and had become delirious, the gypsies considered me to be a burden to them, as I was not born of their race, and one of them took me to Winchester, in the neighborhood of which city the tents were pitched at the time, and there he purposely abandoned me. What subsequently became of me I have not time now to relate. My history has been most eventful, and could not be compressed into a short narrative. But should the laws of my country demand that my misdeeds be expiated on the scaffold, I will leave that history written out in all its remarkable details for your contemplation. Talk not thus, Thomas. Oh, talk not thus, cried Arthur. I will save you yet, even if I throw myself at the feet of the sovereign and proclaim that you are my brother. God grant that you may prove successful, for the sake of one who loves me well, said Rainford solemnly, but let me pursue the thread of that much of my story which I have now to relate to you. It appears that when Miranda did recover from her serious illness, the gypsies did not like to tell her the truth relative to myself, and they therefore invented the tale of my death to account for my disappearance. Thus was it that, until a few months ago, she remained in ignorance of the deceit that had been practiced upon her. And the same day, which revealed to her the fact that I was still alive, made me acquainted with the history of my birth. Miranda also told me that Benjamin Bones was still in existence and was reputed to be a rich man. She had recently been in London, and curiosity had prompted her to make inquiries concerning him. All that she had gleaned she communicated to me. It then struck me that I would come to London, that I would throw myself in the way of that man who had plundered me of my inheritance, and that I would watch for some favorable opportunity to wring from him the amount with interest and compound interest that was fairly mine. I learned from Miranda that certain papers had been found about the person of my poor mother after she was dead, and that the perusal of them had excited the interest of this bones. It therefore struck me that I might recover those documents, as well as the money of which I had been plundered. If the documents should prove in any way interesting or valuable, I thought, so much the better. If not, no harm would be done in obtaining possession of them. I came to London, 
and accident enabled me, through the intervention of a mutual acquaintance named Tolak, to meet with Benjamin Bones. I offered him my services in a particular way, and he accepted them. To be candid, he was to plan deeds of villainy, and I was to execute them. His terms were so ridiculously exorbitant that I should have laughed at them had I not a particular object to serve in connecting myself with him. And the opportunity which I sought presented itself sooner than I had anticipated. In a word, I had succeeded in all I had undertaken. I was enabled to help myself to as much as I chose of his hoarded treasures, and I discovered the papers that I have alluded to. And were they of any interest? asked the Earl. Of such interest and of such value, Arthur, returned Tom Rain, that perhaps there is no other man in England who would have failed to avail himself of the brilliant prospects that they opened to my view. But I was not to be dazzled by them, not to be led away by the temptation. No, I knew that my character was gone, that my reputation was tarnished, that my misdeeds were numerous and great, and I felt also for you, Arthur, as well as for the haughty name of Ellingham. "'What do you mean, my dear brother?' cried the noble, struck by the impressive tone in which Rainford uttered these words. "'I mean,' answered the debased highwayman to the great peer, "'that within the last few days there has been within my reach a jewel which I might have had, and might have still.' for the mere trouble of extending my hand to reach it, a jewel such as men toil all their lives to gain. This jewel is a proud title and a princely fortune. Thomas, my brother, ejaculated the earl, a strange and exciting suspicion flashing through his brain. Yes, a proud title and a princely fortune, Arthur, repeated Rainford, but I desire neither. Yet, solemnly and seriously, do I declare that amongst those papers which I discovered in the den of Benjamin Bones, there was one which would make me rich at the expense of another, ennoble me to the prejudice of one whom the proud title better becomes, and that individual who would thus suffer is yourself. For Octavia Manners was the Countess of Ellingham, and I, the debased highwayman, am thine elder brother legitimately born. Oh, what do I hear? exclaimed Arthur. And how much generosity does your conduct display? But think not, dearest brother, that I grieve at the announcement which you have just made. No, far from that. To know that my father did justice to your poor mother, to be able to entertain the conviction that the author of our being was less guilty than I imagined, is a source of satisfaction so pure, so sincere, so heartfelt, that I would gladly purchase it, even with a loss of title and fortune. It is you who are generous, Arthur, said Rainford, for so we shall continue to call him at all events for the present. But that coronet which sits so gracefully on your noble brow, and that fortune which enables you to do so much good, shall never be lost to you. No, never, Arthur. Titles I care not for, great wealth I do not crave, and even if I yearned for the one or aspire to the other, of what avail would be that idol? Ineffectual ambition? 
Here am I in a vile dungeon, accused of a serious offence, my life endangered. And even if your interest should save me, must I not forever become an exile from the land of my birth? Yes, for whether you deter the prosecutors from farther proceedings in my case, or should they push the matter to the extreme verge and my life be saved only at your intercession, can I remain in England? If released from custody, how can I hope to gain an honest name in this clime? If condemned to death and then reprieved, Will not this leniency on the part of the crown be conceded on the condition of banishment for the remainder of my days? Thus, Arthur, even did I desire to possess the proud name of Ellingham, did I aspire to that coronet which adorns thy brow, I could not be mad enough to yield to the temptation. But, I repeat, I care not for rank, I need not much wealth, and thus neither my position nor my inclination will for an instant permit me to disturb you in the enjoyment of the family honors and the hereditary estates. Alas, how much, how deeply do I regret that we had not met before to embrace his brothers, exclaimed the earl, though crimes are imputed to you, Thomas. Yet do you possess a heart endowed with the loftiest, the most generous feelings. Ah, well do I now understand wherefore you were agitated last night at Lady Hatfield's house, and why you told me that from no other man in England would you ask as a favor that right of egress from the mansion which you could command by force, and I, who was once on the point of striking you. But wherefore did you not then reveal to me what you have told me now? The secret of my birth you should never have learned from my lips, answered Rainford. No, I would not have allowed you to know that you possessed a relative for whom you would have to blush. But I was compelled to make that revelation to Lady Hatfield because... Ah, oh, let us not talk of her, brother, said Lord Ellingham mournfully. I would not for worlds reproach you. And yet you know not how profoundly I have loved that woman, how tenderly I love her still. But my hopes there, let us change the topic, I say, he added, hastily interrupting himself, and now tell me if there be anything I can do in order to soften the grief which must be experienced by that one to whom you alluded ere now, any message that I can take to her. Yes, you must see her, said Rainford, after a moment's reflection and you must tell her that she is to give up to you all those papers which relate to the marriage of our father and my mother and to my birth. She is acquainted with everything that concerns me and my affairs. It was my original intention to keep those papers, not to serve any purpose, never to use them, but to gratify one of those unaccountable whims which sometimes influence the most strong-minded amongst us. I thought that perhaps when in a foreign land, for it was my intention to have quitted this country in a few days, I might sometimes feel a pleasure in contemplating documents so closely connected with my parentage and my birth. Perhaps, too, I might have been swayed by some little sentiment of pride in being able to say to myself, a title and a princely fortune are within my grasp, 
and I will not take them because I feel myself so utterly unworthy of the first, and because I require not the other. But now, let my fate be whatever it may, it is prudent that those papers should be destroyed. She who has them in her keeping loves me, adores me, but she has one foible, one weakness, which has already produced serious embarrassment. She is fond of gay apparel, of costly jewels, of those trinkets and that outward show which dazzle the minds of so many women, and this passion on her part is stronger than herself. In a word, then, I would rather that the paper should not remain in her hands. I would sooner that they should be burnt at once than become the source of a temptation which circumstances might perhaps some day render irresistible to her. If you really wish to ease my mind of any portion of that weight of anxiety which now hangs upon it, you will at once visit her, and when you tell her all that has passed between you and me ere now, she will give you up those documents which I enjoin you to commit to the flames when you have perused them. I will do your bidding, Thomas, in all respects save one, returned Lord Ellingham, and that is with regard to the destruction of the papers. No, if you are generous to a degree, I must at least be just, and I will keep those documents for you, safely, religiously keep them, to be at your disposal at any time, however remote, should altered circumstances induce you to claim them. Then you imagine, said Rainford, with something of bitterness in his tone, that should the future smile upon me, I might be tempted to pluck the coronet from your brow and place it on mine own? You wrong me. Yes, you wrong me, Arthur. Heaven knows that I would not willingly, wantonly do so, cried the nobleman enthusiastically, but justice... Well, be it as you say, interrupted Rainford, with a view to terminate the discussion on this topic, obtain the papers. They will be safer with you than with her, much as she is devoted to me. And now must I reveal to you another secret, a secret of a strange and romantic nature connected with her whom you are about to visit. With Esther, said the Earl hastily. Ah! ever harping upon that name, exclaimed Rainford. Did I not assure you last night that Esther is as pure and innocent as woman can be, and that she does not even know me by sight? See then if I have deceived you, but I will not keep you in suspense. At this moment, the turnkey entered with an intimation that it was impossible to allow the interview to be protracted any longer on the present occasion as the hour for locking up had already passed some time. "'Tomorrow, then, you will come again,' said Renford, in a low whisper to his brother. "'And now go to Number 5 Brandon Street, Locks Fields. It's not very far from here, and inquire for Mrs. Rainford.' The Earl pressed his hand in assurance of obeying the directions thus given, and as the turnkey appeared impatient, the young nobleman hurried away from his brother's cell. But the mystery relative to Esther de Medina, whatever it might be, was not so soon to be cleared up as the Earl of Ellingham expected. Upon leaving the prison, he observed an ill-looking fellow lounging about at the gate, 
but on whose forbidding countenance the light of the lamp streamed fully when the wicket was opened to afford the nobleman egress. For our readers will remember that all the incidents yet related in this narrative occurred in the winter time, when it is dark at four o'clock. But it was now nearly six o'clock, and the atmosphere was heavy with mist. The earl walked rapidly away from the prison gate, and when he had proceeded about thirty yards, he inquired of a passer-by the way to Locke's fields. The man was a stranger in the neighborhood, and could not tell him. "'Please, sir, I'll show you the way,' exclaimed another individual, stepping officiously forward. Lord Ellingham immediately recognized, by the light that glimmered from a window in Horsemonger Lane, the ill-looking fellow whom he had noticed at the door of the prison, and for an instant he hesitated to accept his services. But at the next moment he felt ashamed of this vague alarm, and directed the man to lead on. The fellow turned abruptly round, saying, "'You are going out of your way, sir. We must get down to the fields by the back of the prison.' And he led the way, the earl following him, down Horsemonger Lane towards Harper Street. But as they passed along the prison wall, Arthur observed two or three men loitering about at short intervals from each other, and it struck him that his guide coughed in a peculiar fashion as he passed them. A misgiving, which he vainly endeavored to resist, was now excited in the Earl's mind, but still he would not turn back nor question his guide. Suddenly, he was seized from behind and pulled violently backward, while a strong hand fastened itself, as it were, over his mouth. He struggled desperately, but his guide turned on him, and he was now in the grasp of four powerful men, whose united strength it was impossible to resist. Still, he endeavored to release himself, and once he managed to get the hand away from his mouth, an advantage of which he instantly availed himself to cry out for help but in another instant he was stunned by the blow of a pistol on the head. When he awoke, he was in total darkness and lying on a hard bed. He instinctively stretched out his arms. His right hand encountered a rough and damp stone wall. He rose and groped cautiously about him. But it required not many moments to convince him of the terrible though mysterious truth that he was the inmate of a narrow dungeon. But where was he thus imprisoned? Who were the authors of this outrage? And for what purpose was he made a captive? These three queries defied all conjecture, and the young nobleman was left to the darkness of his dungeon and the gloom of his meditations. End of section 49 Recorded by Sheila Blunt